Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Laura. Shall we pray as we start? (coughs) Father, I pray that you would come by your spirit. Open up this passage to us. Give us understanding and insight into what you're saying to each one of us this morning. Teach us, transform us, correct us and encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier we were singing a song where the first line talked of when the music fades and all is stripped away. And I wonder if we could ask ourselves that question this morning of who would I be, who would we be if everything was stripped away? At the end of my second year at university, I got an illness called glandular fever, which turned into um, what was diagnosed as ME, chronic fatigue. I'd been quite active at university. I'd been studying theology, which I loved and worked quite hard at. I'd attempted to start up um, a charity in Oxford, which I tried to run, and also do a little project with the homeless. And on top of that, to try and have a normal social life and play as much sport as I could. And it's maybe unsurprising that after all that I got ill. But when I was ill, what happened was everything seemed to be stripped away. All the things that I thought defined who I was were taken away. Studying theology, the charity, sport, friends. All these things went. I didn't have the energy to see people or even to read. All I could do was lie in bed and watch DVD box sets. As I did all the series of West Wing, 24, The OC. And during that time I was forced to think again of who am I? 
And I think this is a question which it's essential for us all to ask ourselves from time to time. If our job, if our hobbies, if our families, if our friends, if our health was taken away, who would I be? If I got depressed and was no longer the life and soul of every party, who then would I be? If I lost my job, I was no longer the successful one, who then would I be? If I slipped up morally and was no longer the good one, who then would I be? And I think we find the answer to this question of who am I deep inside by looking at Jesus and his identity. This week we're beginning a series on the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel. And this morning I'd like to just focus on, uh, we've had a description of John the Baptist and all this baptizing and all these sort of um, people coming for repentance and confessing their sins. But I'd like to concentrate just on this bit where Jesus is baptized and the temptations that follow. Because I think in, this opening, in these opening verses of Mark's gospel, Mark is trying to answer the question of who is Jesus? What is the identity of this carpenter from Galilee? And the answer comes from heaven, a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. And the extraordinary thing is that we can find our own identities by looking at Jesus. Because Jesus is not only the exact representation of God, he is also the complete revelation of what it means to be a human being. So let's look at these few verses to see who Jesus was and also how we can discover our own identity through Jesus. And I think perhaps there are three clues as to who we really are when looking at Jesus. First of all, find your identity in your relationship with God. You'll notice at the crucial moment where God speaks from heaven and declares Jesus' identity and says who Jesus is. He doesn't say, this is the carpenter, or this is the healer, or this is the teacher, or this is the preacher. He doesn't even say, this is, you are the savior of the world. He doesn't describe what he does or what he will do. Nor does he call him the sinless one, or the pure one, or the patient one, or the holy one. He doesn't describe his character. Instead, God simply calls him, my son. It seems that for the father, the most important thing about Jesus is not his mission or his character. It's his relationship with him. You are my son. And I suppose that's why Jesus spent so much of his time trying to get away from the preaching and the miracles to just spend time with his father in prayer. He knew that that relationship was the most important thing in his life. And the amazing thing is that we too can have that relationship. The reason why Jesus came was in order that we might be able to have that sort of relationship with God. He came that we might be able to call God Abba, Father. 
that we might be able to know him intimately as his own children. I mean, there is a difference. Jesus is son of God by nature. He is the eternal son, begotten before the ends of the earth, uh, before the beginning of the world. He is the, the, by nature, son of God. But we are children by adoption. If we are in Christ, everything that is Jesus becomes ours. We become sons and daughters of God. And what God says over Jesus at his baptism, he says to each one of us today, you are my son, you are my daughter. And this is our primary identity. This is far more important than anything we do. It doesn't matter whether you're a brilliant barrister or a failed solicitor, a plumber, a builder, unemployed, unemployable. But that's, your not, that's not your primary identity. It is even more important than your character, whether you're good or bad, generous or stingy, patient or angry confident or insecure, no matter what your past is, no matter how often you fail to do what is right, no matter if you've always done what is right, what matters most is your relationship with God. It's what mattered most to Jesus and it's what matters most for us. The answer to the question of who are we deep inside when everything is stripped away, the answer is we're sons and daughters of God. And this means, I suppose, that God loves it most when we spend time with him, praying and reading his word. He prefers that to all we might achieve or the development of our character. And it's incredibly liberating, isn't it? Because we don't have to prove ourselves to God or to other people. We don't have to try and persuade God or other people how important we are in our jobs, how morally good we are, how committed we are to the church, how much we give to charity. Because our identity is first of all as sons and daughters of God. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care what we do or the development of our characters. Of course, God cares about those things deeply. He cares about everything in our lives because we are sons and daughters. But those things are secondary. First of all, we are sons and daughters of God. So first of all, in order to discover who we are, we need to find our identity in our relationship with God. Second of all, we need to receive God's affirmation. It's interesting, isn't it, that this wonderful affirma- uh, statement of affirmation by the Father, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased, comes at the beginning rather than at the end of Jesus' ministry. We might have thought that God would say this thing, this statement at the end. Maybe as Jesus hung on the cross, God would say, this is my son and I love you and I'm so pleased with all you've done and achieved. But God affirms Jesus before he's done anything. Well, not anything. He's been a carpenter for a decade or so. But that's hardly worthy of a voice from heaven saying, I'm really pleased. He was probably a very good carpenter. But it's not quite, you don't think that's quite enough. But God loved Jesus and thought he was absolutely wonderful before he'd begun to establish his kingdom, before he'd begun to save the world. He loved him before he did anything. And it's true for us as well. God loves us 
and thinks we're absolutely wonderful before we've done anything. Remember at the creation of the world. God creates the world and after each day it says, Genesis says that God looked and saw that it was good. And after the creation of humans, it says that God looked and saw that it was very good. Personally, I would have waited a bit longer before making any rash judgments as to whether it was very good, or particularly humans. I'd give them, say, a trial period to see how they got on, and then say whether they were good or very good, see how they turned out. But God doesn't work like that. Right at the beginning, he creates humans and says, they're very good. He delights in them from the beginning. Right before we do anything, God loves us and delights in us. He thinks well of us. This is so difficult to believe, isn't it? If you're anything like me, you either tend to believe that God loves us because we've done something or because we're serving him or because we're good and that kind of leads to a pride because God, we think that God loves us because of what we've done for him. Or we think that God cannot love us because of all the terrible things we've done and still do and all the terrible things we think and feel. And that leads to a sort of despair. But God loves us and delights in us, no matter how well we have done. In Dale Carnegie's classic work, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Carnegie says that the best way to motivate people is to affirm them. And it's highly motivating, isn't it? If your boss thinks you're absolutely brilliant before you've done anything for him, it sort of encourages you to work harder. And it's incredibly liberating to know before we've done anything, God loves us and thinks we're brilliant. We don't have to try and prove ourselves to God or justify us, ourselves because God loves us and delights in us from the beginning. So that's the second thing. The first thing is, in order to discover identity, we find our identity in our relationship with God. Second of all, we receive God's affirmation. Third of all, I think, in order to discover who we really are deep inside, we need to choose the heights and the depths. Sheldon Van Orken, who is an American writer from the middle of the last century, wrote an autobiography called A Severe Mercy. And in it, he described himself as a young man, aged about 18, looking out at his future and sort of seeing before him two paths he, he could go. He could either choose the level planes or the heights and the depths. And the level planes would be safe, but the heights and the depths would bring intense joy and intense pain. And at that moment, he chose the heights and the depths and had this extraordinary life that was worth writing about as an autobiography. And Jesus, too, seems to embrace a similar path. He goes from this moment of affirmation, this sort of moment of ecstasy, when he's affirmed as God's son and he's loved, and God says that he's pleased with him, into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And life does seem to have these these heights and these depths, doesn't it? And it's often, I don't know whether you've noticed, that the heights, I mean, Jesus' baptism, I'd have thought, lasted, what, half an hour? And the temptations lasted 40 days. And it's the same with us, isn't it? The heights are brilliant, last about five minutes. The difficult times last sort of three years. 
<laughs> and, and for Jesus, actually, the whole of his ministry seems to be one of heights and depths. People are healed, raised from the dead, forgiven, restored, set free. But he's also hated, opposed, falsely accused, killed. And then he's raised to life again. It's this roller coaster ride. And I think that's the way life is supposed to be. In the level plains, when we're coasting through life and everything's just quite kind of flat, we don't really learn much, do we? But it's in the heights and probably even more in the depths when we really discover who we are. It is in the Jordan that Jesus' identity is affirmed, but it's in the desert that Jesus' identity is tested. You remember in Matthew and Luke's account of the temptations, Satan is always saying, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread, throw yourself off the temple. Satan is trying to undermine Jesus' identity, if you are the son of God. And it's often the case, isn't it, the difficult times, we're forced to really rethink who we are. When we lose our job, or get ill, or a relationship breaks up, or we suffer a bereavement, at those moments our identities are challenged. You sort of think, oh, if I'm no longer able to play sport, am I really the kind of the person I thought I was? If I no longer function as I used to, or provide for the family, what's left? But the difficult times are the times where our identities are really forged. I think it's important that Jesus went through this time of testing before he began his ministry, as it seemed to cement who he was. And Jesus came out of the, 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 the desert, fully confident then of who he was and what he had been called to do. The history of Israel, too, it was the wilderness where they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then in the exile, the exile in Babylon, where Israel's identity was really formed in those two crucial periods of testing, of difficult times. And it was actually in those two periods that most of what we have in the Bible were written. It was there they discovered what God's will was and who they were as a people. And I know that for me personally, it was the time when I was ill, when everything seemed to be stripped away. When I was no longer studying, no longer could be sort of interesting or going to parties or playing sport or serving God in any useful way or being helpful to anyone, I recognized in that time who I was because in that time I knew that God loved me as I was, ill, alone, utterly useless and watching the fourth series of 24 for the third time. Martin Luther, the reformer, taught that it's at the worst times when we're most conscious of our sin, of our failures, of our weakness, even when we're doubting God, that God is most at work in us. For it's on the cross, when things are at their worst, when even Jesus feels abandoned by God, that God was most at work reconciling the world to himself. And I don't know whether you felt it, but I certainly have. It's at the, the most difficult times, the hardest times, when God has been most at work in my life. And so I would never swap those few years when I was ill. Because then you're forced to confront the truth. And I was forced to confront the truth that God loved me as I was. Useless, but his son. And I didn't have to do anything to earn that.
So I think these are the three clues as to how we find our identity. We find our identity in our relationship with God as sons and daughters. We receive God's affirmation before we've done anything and his delight in us. And we choose the heights and the depths, letting God, God forge our identity in the, in the good times and the difficult times. But you may be thinking, yeah, all, all this works in theory. Yeah, okay, I'm a son and a daughter, and he loves me no matter what I do. And God is at work in the difficult times, I'm sure. But I don't feel that. It doesn't feel true. I don't feel like a daughter of God. I don't feel like a son of God. I don't feel loved for who I am. I don't feel like God is using the difficult times to forge my identity. How can all this be experienced in the presence? I think that it's crucial that this one, these two little details, the description of the divine voice at baptism and at the temptation in the desert, the Holy Spirit is present. For it is the Spirit who descends on Jesus and affirms his identity. And it's the Spirit who drove him out into the desert. It is the Spirit who adopts us as sons and daughters. It is the Spirit who enables us to know that we are truly loved. It is the Spirit who guides us through the heights and the depths and reassures us of God's presence. So I thought we could end, if you are happy, by asking the Holy Spirit to come and fill each one of us. Paul commands the Ephesians to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a constant thing. We ask the Spirit to come again and again to affirm our relationship with him and to give us the knowledge of his unconditional love for us. So should we stand and ask the Spirit to come? Spirit of God, come and fill us. Lord, thank you for your presence with us by your Spirit. And I pray that the Spirit would come and fill our hearts. Fill us with the knowledge of you, of our identity in you, and of your unconditional love. Come, Holy Spirit. What we're going to do now is um, we're going to sing our final song. But then after that song, we're going to continue to receive from God. So after the song, we'll continue to stand and allow a bit of time for people to respond in their hearts to some of these things. So let's, I'll hand over to Gordon Fiona and let's sing. Mm-hmm.